Welcome to the Nourish and Empower podcast, where we redefine, reclaim, and restore the true meaning of health. Join us as we dive into the tough conversations about mental health, nutrition, eating disorders, diet culture, and body image. I'm Maggie, a registered dietitian. And I'm Jessica, a licensed professional counselor. Together, we have over 10 years of experience working in eating disorders and mental health treatment. Trigger warning. In this show, we will be discussing eating disorders and other mental health disorders. We welcome you to the table for these conversations. However, if at any point you feel those conversations are causing more harm in your recovery process, you can always take a pause and come back to listen and reflect with us at a later time. Even though we are discussing nutrition and therapy modalities on this podcast, this show is not medical, nutrition, or mental health treatment and is not a replacement for meeting with a registered dietitian, licensed mental health provider, or any other medical provider. You can find resources for how to find a provider as well as crisis resources in the show notes. Kick back, relax, grab a snack, and join your favorite dietitian and therapist duo as we chat, laugh, cry, and reflect together. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Nourish and Empower podcast. Hello everyone. Today we have with us Julia Vitolo. She received her Master's of Science in Occupational Therapy from Seton Hall University. Her expertise is in improving a child's physical, social, and emotional development, cognition, and sensory processing skills to help them reach their fullest potential in daily living. In addition to her OT skill set, her background in recreational therapy and injury prevention supports a holistic treatment planning approach to engage the child in functional, safe, and purposeful therapeutic play to reach positive outcomes for the child and family. Julia, thank you for joining us today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And you are, Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure you're our first occupational therapist, so I'm even more excited because it's always nice to have people from different modalities come in to talk about, you know, health, nutrition, mental health, all the things. So, Thanks for being the first on. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so I feel like I, I know a little bit about what an OT does, but even when I was reading your bio, it I was like, oh, I don't really think I do know all of like the different things that an OT can do. So could you give our listeners like just kind of a brief explanation of like what an OT means? Absolutely. So occupational therapists really can target anything across the lifespan that has to do with your everyday activities. So we refer to them as occupations, but most people think that's kind of like a job role. Essentially, it's not. It's any kind of activity that makes up your everyday. So putting your shoes on uh, is an occupation. Putting your getting dressed in the morning, brushing your teeth, all of those everyday activities and everything that kind of, those underlying skills that help you get there. So you think of feeding, self-feeding is an occupation. We are looking at their ability to sit for the task, their fine motor function to, you know, grasp the utensils and everything to bring it to their mouth, as well as the underlying seating positioning, gross motor skills to be sitting upright, the postural control that you need, or that kind of activity, as well as the overall sensory integration of your system to tolerate the smell of food, the taste of the food, the tactile components of the food, and things like that. So it's it really encompasses a lot of 
underlying skills and foundational uh, building blocks for your everyday activities. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. You have to pay attention to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, um, and it's always like a growing process. It's mm-hmm. um, continuing changing as, as kids are growing, their responsibilities are changing. So dressing when they're younger might look like taking on and off your socks or putting on your sock, uh, putting on your shoes. Um, and then as you get older, we're working on fasteners and things like that. So as you grow, it's it's always changing, which is why I, I enjoy working with kids because the the changeover in responsibility and role is moving pretty quickly at this age. Yeah. Because when you were describing the occupations, I feel like there could be a million different things mm-hmm. that could fall into that category. So do most OTs have a specialty in a sense then, whether it's like an age range they work with or maybe even like a specific like population with medical diagnoses? Not specifically, uh, maybe populate like age-wise, like I mean, we work in pediatrics, but it's, it's zero to 21. That's very, very broad. Yeah. But some people work in like, a, you know, a geriatric population, but again, that can be pretty broad. So not necessarily. I think that whether you work in like orthopedics or you work in, you know, neuro, you're going to see maybe heavy of that population, mm. but you're still mm-hmm. going to like get different um, diagnoses and different things that you come across. So I wouldn't say that there's anything specific. We we focus on, again, those occupations. I mean, that ranges from sleep function and hygiene to, you know, social participation and leisure activities, work activities, education, all of those occupations are, are occupations. So we are focusing on either adapting, modifying, or restoring function so that they can participate in those everyday roles, responsibilities of that child or uh, person. You really do the whole gamut of just how to function as a human being. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely, wow. definitely a lot. Yeah. I know. I was like, when I asked that question, I was, and this is why I shouldn't assume because I don't know anything about this. I was like, oh, she's definitely going to say everybody's super specialized. And then when you were like, no, most people aren't. I'm like, wow, that's a, a heck of a lot to, like Jess said, like when you're working with somebody to be thinking about observing, working on, there's so much there. That's super impressive. So much. Absolutely. Can you, for our listeners, because I know as a therapist, like this is something that we go through in like Psych 101, but it's something that like if it's not in your specialty, you don't necessarily have to know, right? When you talk about motor skills, we know there's two different types of motor skills. Correct me if I'm wrong. Can you identify and then define what those motor skills are and like examples of what they are? Because I think that would be interesting for clients to hear about too. Sure. Um, So I think when you mean like two, like there's kind of like more of a gross motor movement or like fine motor movement. Mm -hmm. So we do cross over into just like gross motor functional play in, in some sense, but specifically we might focus more on upper quarter in occupational therapy. We're not going to be working on, you know, foot mobility or anything like that. It would be upper quarter. So think of like kind of from the shoulder to the hand in uh, motor function specifically. So if we had to get, you know, more shoulder range of motion so we could reach for something and then scoop and bring it to our mouth and go for feeding overall and then as it gets more precise working on that precision and that uh, fine motor dexterity fine motor planning those kind of motor skills as well for us to be able to grasp something open close reaching so yeah does that kind of answer that question yeah so 
I just want to say that back to make sure I'm understanding it. So gross motor skills are more so of like, let me see if I know how to say this. So gross motor skills are the, like the bigger, more like vague movements of the body where fine motor skills are the more specifics where like moving, like raising my arm up and down is gross. Whereas picking something up and using like the more specific of the body is going to be fine motor. Correct. Uh, think of like, think of fine motor as more like manual dexterity, manual precision and gross motor. Think of like total body. So gross motor, you have to have like the gross postural control and, and muscle muscles to, to generate those fine motor movements. Cause if you don't have the control from your shoulder, you're not going to be able to precisely pinch at uh, an object and bring it to your mouth. You have to have the stability from uh, more proximally or more closer to your midline. Amazing. Thank you. I always get those so confused. Because it's not something that I, like, always have to work with or really yeah, ever. Yeah. So I was even more excited about this so you could teach me because I really wanted to know. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and as you can see, you need to have one to have the other. So they do overlap. They do interchange. So it's hard to say that we just focus on this. We're always, we're always as you can see, the, the gamut that we <laughs> encompass, we're always focusing on. There's an overlap of what we're looking at. Absolutely. I have to imagine then there's OTs that work with like really, really young kids too then, right? Like even like babies and toddlers and honing in yeah. on, like you said, some of those skills. Absolutely. And, yeah. And again, from, from some of like that really small age, like two months, three months old, really just working on tracking, like kind of that head control for movement and that visual examination, because that, that's, that's your function. That is, that is your responsibility or role at that age. Like whether it's a play task or just like, um, a daily living task for them at that age is, is working on just your visual function. So the different age groups, you're going to be working on different things based on what's appropriate for that age. Um, but yes, we do get some babies um, sometimes, you know, born like inpatient to outpatient. They were born, stayed in the hospital for a couple months and then they get discharged to outpatient. Um, so you're kind of like continuing that care as they, you know, make gains medically and um, developmentally. So you see babies that are truly like just born and then brought from, is it like specific NICU or is it, and like pick you and stuff like that? Or is it like, like, does there have to be a complication with birth in order to then go to see you in OT or can they be born, go home and then need you? Does that make sense? Correct. They're yeah, okay. they don't have, there doesn't have to be a specific like birth complication. Okay. They can, a lot of times, torticollis, uh, babies with torticollis, so it's like a shortened muscle in the neck. So they will go for like PT to strengthen and uh, loosen that muscle in the neck. But because of that orthopedic condition, they're going to be more delayed in, in some of that crawling, rolling, all of those other motor functions. So then they will also come for OT for some of that reaching and tracking and things like that. Because when you're, when you're looking out your midline, like this, your midline orientation is going to be changed. So we have to correct their upright function and things like that, crossing midline and reaching for toys, objects. So they, but often torticollis isn't like a birth injury or something that they would necessarily be put in the NICU for right after birth. That was kind of where I was going with that. Gotcha. Okay. Do you, so two questions coming at you, because OTs and speech language pathologists are two other types of 
professional, paraprofessionals that, you know, Maggie and I might work with in regards to like eating disorder clients. Do you typically work with speech language pathologists? And if so, are they with ARFID clients specifically, or are there other ways that you can work with professionals without it being ARFID? So specifically to speech, I mean, across various diagnoses and conditions, we, we work very closely with speech as well as all the other disciplines here. I think it's helpful even just to a lot of us share patients. Um, we'll get like OT for an hour, speech for an hour, maybe psychology for an hour, whatever it is, they get like back-to-back therapies um, and we're all in one building in like our outpatient um, hospital right here. So we work very closely with um, each other, whether it's just like, oh, mom reported this. And then I say, oh, well, mom reported this in my session. And then we kind of collaborate and say, okay, well, I'm starting to see a pattern or like I'm seeing this, things like that. Just that overall coordination of care is very helpful yeah. um, for the child as well. And then specifically to ARFID, um, we have like a specific feeding team evaluation, which is a comprehensive evaluation with an OT, speech therapist, a nutritionist, and a um, psychologist. So each of those disciplines are able to do like a comprehensive team evaluation. We take medical history and the intake all together. We take the parent report, like interview, mm-hmm. um, and we, you know, compile all that information. And then we do like feeding trials where we present the non-preferred food to the child, see how they interact with it. We use like a sensory approach, like a steps to eating approach. You know, can they visually look at it? Um, can they just tolerate it being on the table or within their within their visual field? Um, and then they can, you know, we move forward. Okay, can we um, interact with it? Can we pretend, play with it? Can we touch it? And, and we keep moving like kind of up that ladder, up that hierarchy. Yeah. Until the child can eventually maybe kiss it, lick it. And, and not all the time does that kind of in the feeding trials, in the evaluation, not all the time does that child consume, consume the food. But once we recommend for therapy, you know, across, if you're working on that same goal, that food um, exposure, working on decreasing that food aversion for four months, at the end of that session, at the end of that episode of care, you're going to have made gains with, you know, accepting new foods, mm-hmm. tolerating new textures, and things like that. So on that feeding team... The OT is really the one doing the, like, physical feeding trials with the patient? It depends. Okay. Um, if, if the kid has, depending on what their needs are, sometimes if it's more sensory-based, mm-hmm. the OT might be providing, okay, let's try this seating position. Let's try this position for, let's try movement in between. Let's try something to get them to interact or engage more. If it's more behavior-based, the psychology might be leading, like, okay, touch first, then you get this reward. Just to, it it kind of depends Mm -hmm. as to what the child needs to improve their overall engagement. I feel like it's definitely team-based. It's very cohesive. That's awesome. Yeah. And so interesting, because I feel like for, like, our treatment teams, it's typically, Mm -hmm. like, dietitian, therapist, maybe psychiatrist, and then a doctor. And so, because, like, an OT isn't commonly on like an eating disorder treatment team. Sometimes they like we refer to them like the dietitian, mm-hmm. like I'm the one really doing a lot of those like feeding trials. But okay. it's so interesting hearing like, like just like the difference with the like the approaches too, because obviously like I know things about 
like sensory characteristics with food or, you know, the macronutrients, the micronutrient breakdown. But like when you just said seating position, I'm like, that's not something I have any experience with or know anything about. So it's so cool to hear from your perspective, like that could, you know, it could be something like that, right? Like the environment or like you were saying earlier, like even some of those motor skills. Yeah. And and I also think a lot of times, I'm not sure what what age group you guys are are specifically working with. Everything. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Not as young as you, I'd say. Like, I typically go the youngest, like eight. Even that's a little young for me. So I'd maybe say for me, it's more like 10, 11. Uh, No. Yeah. And then like all the way through the life cycle. Yeah. Same. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like more, more often than not, the child is coming in younger, much younger, whether it's, whether it's a couple months old and they're trying to transition from feeding to, to, to eating Mm -hmm. like by mouth, or it's, you know, around three or four when they just got the diagnosis of like autism, where they like dropped foods the past year. Yeah. um, And mom's like, you know, they used to eat all these foods. Then, then, you know, they, they dropped all these foods around like one years old, like, you know, something's like weird. Then they finally got the diagnosis around like two to three. Then they're coming to us by like three, four. So a lot of times there's also a lot of other medical conditions yeah. that that kind of play into our approach, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah. With a feeding trial, especially with, with children as young as you work with, right? Like let's say somebody's three, four, five. I'm so curious, are the parents or guardians in the feeding trial too observing or even like interacting or is it very much like clinician patient and then the parents kind of get a recap later on it's a great question um so a lot of times if if the child is open to the therapist and they're you know accepting the therapist can continue to um you know carry out the trial or it's a lot of coaching like hey mom offer it like this mom can you try to can you kiss it, mom? Can you, can you kiss it back? Like it's, it's a lot of coaching mm-hmm. so that the child feels comfortable. And, and we often say, do you have the TV on at home when they're eating? Do you let them play with a specific toy? We want to make it as like normal, you know, to simulate the environment from home. Yeah. So if there's like a preferred show or preferred music, something that's calming that they typically listen to at mealtimes at home, we want to um, offer that in the in the session as well and then it's like a two-way um our treatment room is like a two-way oh that mirror where you could like see through on one end correct yeah correct so we try to we try to like decrease that simulation by having the rest of the team out and just through the glass and maybe just have one therapist in kind of leading and coaching the mom or coaching the parent so that the child doesn't feel like okay why are these people watching me eat you know we try to make it like Try to make it less, you know, overwhelming for the child. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because I, the reason I asked the question about the parents being in there is because I've had experiences working with clients specifically with ARFID where we would do trials together in my office and, and they would do so well with it. They'd be so engaged, you know, and then we would give the task of, okay, and let's try this food again at home this week and then come back to me, you know, next week. And sometimes there was that disconnect at home where like feeding trials were going great in session, then we weren't seeing, you know, that same progress at home. And so then treatment team figuring out like, okay, you know, we got to change something up here, right? Like something isn't, you know, clicking. Yeah. So that's why I was curious of like how you guys work on that too. 
So depending how old, a lot of times, sometimes like when the child is five, six, a little bit older, that's when typically I I have found more um, success with the parent being out of the room. Mm. Because sometimes at that point, I find that the parent is creating an environment or, or at home, the environment is not as comfortable or more um, accepting for the child to be trying these new foods, for the child to be getting messy. A lot of times the kid's like, oh, mom doesn't let me get messy and eat with my hands at home. And I'm like, well, it's OT. We're going to get messy. Dip your hands in that ketchup. We're painting. Dip your hands in the syrup. Like we are like painting with broccoli. We're, we're doing like crazy things. And the kid's like, oh, I can't do this at home. And I'm like, why are you so afraid to try something sticky, like new and like whatever? So it, it definitely correlates from from that aspect as they get older, where I find that sometimes it, it's more, um, you know, psychosocial than it is necessarily sensory. Yeah. But from from when they're when they're younger and, and they're infants or toddlers, um, I think it's beneficial to kind of coach the parent that like this is the environment, the feeding environment you want to. Um, promote and you know try offering it like this try offering even if they don't like the new food you've offered it and and let them pick it up and put it onto the no thank you plate or or let them still interact with it and say no thanks trying to you know promote a healthy um, feeding environment Mm -hmm. so I guess it depends (laughs) I feel like I have so many questions, but I know we only have five minutes. So I'm going to, Julia, we might need to do a part two because this is, it's just so interesting, right? Like I just have so many questions on like how often you see people with like feeding and eating disorders and like struggles. I mean, I just, I could go on and on, but it just, it's just so interesting how from your perspective and from your like framework, how you help everybody and like the different things that you see and just how involved you are in like, like Maggie and I are saying like the whole body of a person, right? You're not just looking at like one specific thing. You're the whole gamut of it. And it's just, I honestly just got chills saying that because I just think it's so cool what it is that you have to focus on all the time. And and I also think that, if you didn't look so holistically, yeah, you wouldn't find you wouldn't find the results that you are looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I just feel like everything is so connected, and as the child is growing, or as you know, the family is introducing these things. To, you know, meal times meal times are a big thing in families, whether it's yeah. cultural or whether it's um, obviously nutritionally. Like that's a big part of your day for you to be able to have the energy and things like that. You have to participate in that activity. Yeah. And it's so meaningful to some families that it's, it's a very, you know, important part for us to really break down and, and look at the whole child, look at the whole family to really see the, the results that we're looking for mm-hmm. and make gains. Yeah. yeah. I say to clients and like parents often, I'm like, right, when eating is stressful, like that isn't every day, multiple times a day stressor. Like it is a major life stressor when yeah. it's stressful because it is, you know, one of the few things that we have to do every single day, multiple times a day. So, right. I mean, to ease like where, where a family meal, you know, prior to coming to you, maybe this stressful, chaotic, you know, environment to then have it be like you said, meaningful, right? Like a meaningful, enjoyable part of people's day. Like that's the ultimate gift. Like you could give to somebody. Great. Absolutely. 
And I think one other big thing in, in OT is we're focusing on independence. We want that child to be able to participate. And it's kind of making that, that cross between the parent feeding the child and the child initiating and wanting to eat that, that food themselves. They want to uh, participate because a lot of times culturally parents are like, oh, it's fine if I feed my child at five, six years old. And, and that is something that's special and meaningful for them to care for that child. But in OT, we wanted them also promote that independence and that, yeah. you know, to prompt that initiation for them to engage in that activity that could be meaningful for themselves, for them to nourish themselves. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. And I know we could pick your brain forever, but we do <laughs> need to wrap up. So we have one last question we ask every guest. And then hopefully we can have you back for a part two so we can Please. get all of our other questions answered. <laughs> but our last question for you is just a fun one. Um, what are some of your favorite snacks? Oh, my favorite snacks? <laughs> Throw you for a loop. I, yeah, seriously. Especially because it's lunchtime, so you're giving me. <laughs> um, my favorite snacks. I love pretzels. Mm. I think that might be one of my, like, any time of day favorite. I love pretzels. I love celery. I love anything crunchy. <laughs> Agreed. Love that. Yeah. Ooh, I love that you brought a sensory characteristic into it, too. Mm-hmm. Perfect for an OT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Julia, thank you so much. This was yeah. extremely informative and, yeah, super, super interesting. And, I mean, it sounds like you're doing such good work. So, congratulations with everything. And... To everybody listening, um, if you have any other questions for Julia, send them over to us and maybe we can convince her to come back. Yeah. We appreciate you all listening and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nourish and Empower podcast. We hope this episode helped you redefine, reclaim, and restore what health means to you. If this episode resonated with you, please subscribe, leave a rating and comment, and share with anyone else who you feel may benefit. We'll meet you back here next time with a new conversation and one of our favorite snacks.